I'm just a bill, yes, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, now I'm stuck in committee, and I'll sit here and wait while a few key congressmen discuss and debate whether they should let me be alone. I hope and pray that they will, but today I am still just a bill. As Speaker of the House, it is my great honor to preside over this sacred ritual of renewal as we gather under the dome of this temple of democracy. With partnership, but with purpose, I pass this great gavel of our government. Today on these steps, we offer this contract as a first step towards renewing American civilization. You know, my father always told me, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And now we need to finish strong for the American people. You're listening to Two Ring Circus, a podcast about Congress. In this episode, we look at what it takes for a major piece of legislation to get across the finish line and examine some bills that have and haven't made it. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller, professor of American politics at Portland State University in fast-growing Portland, Oregon. The civics textbook process for lawmaking in the United States is well described by Schoolhouse Rock's famous song, I'm Just a Bill. For a report on how well the civics process aligns with reality, we turn to our fearless British correspondent on American politics, Nigel Wilkerson. Gonna have a three-ring circus someday. People will say it's a fine one, son. Gonna have a three-ring circus someday. People will come from miles around. Lions, tigers, acrobats, and jugglers, and clowns. The American political system, so mysterious to many around the world, is actually quite transparent and straightforward in its basic outline. There are three branches of government with a fairly direct process of decision-making and a relatively small number of checks on each other's power. It can be described by a few children's songs and literally has been so described. Talking about the government and how it's arranged Divided in three like a circus Ring one, executive Two is legislative, that's Congress The song seems to imply that members of Congress are clowns and acrobats, and there is an argument to be made that this is quite true. In reality, there are many things that happen that aren't part of the constitutional design, and some features of the constitutional design that don't occur. The power of impeachment and removal, for example, is a tool the Constitution puts in the hands of Congress to restrain unscrupulous or unethical officials in the other two branches. Yet recent history shows how unlikely it is that Congress can use this tool effectively. There's no question that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. The yeas are 57, the nays are 43, two-thirds of the senators present not having voted guilty. The Senate judges that the respondent, Donald John Trump, former president of the United States, is not guilty as charged in the article of impeachment. The power of judicial review is an example from the other direction. 
an extremely significant power that the Supreme Court exercises without question, which is not in fact written into the Constitution. It's a political tradition that dates back to 1803, a tradition that has remained strong despite all of the other changes in the American political system during that same period. Congress, too, is saturated with traditional practices and political accommodations that impact how it functions or doesn't function. Unlike the Supreme Court, which has only strengthened around its acquired power of judicial review over the centuries, Congress evolves and transforms, often erratically and incompletely, but old traditions go by the wayside and new ways of doing things emerge. Congress is relatively active one decade, relatively inactive the next. The orderly process of legislating, so simply and beautifully described in the song I'm Just a Bill, originally written a half-century ago, may have been fairly accurate at the time it was first released in 1975, but it now seems as antiquated as the building-sized computers used by NASA to control the moon launch. My iPhone has more computing power than the entire space program did at the time, and the tale of a bill emerging from constituents' needs to travel to Washington and sit in committee for prolonged debate and discussion is similarly outdated. Successful bills originate in Washington's halls of power among congressional leadership, or negotiated directly with the president. And while committees still exist, and hold hearings and do mock-up as always, they are scarcely involved, if at all, in the crafting of legislation that actually passes one or both of the chambers. Individual legislators may take feedback from their constituents and attempt to introduce bills on their behalf, just like the heroic congressman in Schoolhouse Rock, but such bills are either entirely symbolic or never get anywhere at all. To the extent that committees do important work, it is almost entirely in the area of oversight, an important piece of the system of checks and balances that doesn't make its way into the children's songs. Oversight hearings are intended to allow Congress to keep an eye on the behavior of the other two branches of government and to provide the sort of insight that's needed to craft future legislation. This again, though in a more advanced manner, is the civics textbook definition of oversight, while the reality of congressional hearings in today's divisive political environment is quite otherwise. Hearings have become a tool of the majority party to engage in performative politics, largely aimed at generating media coverage that will help members win re-election, and either help or harm the incumbent president, depending which party he belongs to. Oversight hearings bear little relation to the crafting of legislation that might ultimately make it to the president's desk. An oversight hearing in the present era of American politics is often little more than political posturing, with no apparent benefit beyond fundraising off of outrage and producing sound bites for advertisements. Those witnesses aren't here. Uh, Mr. Chairman, you will, point of order. you will get a chance to cross-examine Mr. Sauer. You've not stated point of order here that I'll my, recognize the my, gentleman Mr. from Mr. Louisiana. Chairman, point of order. Isn't, isn't it true that even in recent days... Claiming my time. No, you're, have, you're not recognized, sir. Isn't it true that yes, even... Yes, I am. I, I was recognized. Sure. He did recognize me. Well, point of order, I'm now recognizing Mr. Johnson because you're you're not sitting your point of order any longer. You're making a speech. If we aren't able to to probe the the veracity of their statements, the truthfulness of their statements... You will be given your five minutes here with uh, when we get to the, the five minutes. They're not here. They're not here they're, to understand that. You will be able to They ask. have scurried you, away you with could, your complicity. You, uh, they, they refuse they to defend... They have not scurried away. They in were a country of like 330 million people, you couldn't Mr. Sauer two people for his to defend five minutes their of testimony. That's, that's pretty disgraceful. Mr. Sauer, Mr. Chairman, I move to adjourn. That's an actual recording of a congressional committee meeting held in 2023. Perhaps Schoolhouse Rock's insinuation that all members of Congress are clowns and acrobats isn't too far from reality after all. I'm Nigel Wilkerson, reporting from America. The evolution of Congress into a leadership-centric institution, where the crafting of legislation is done largely behind closed doors among a small group of negotiators, hasn't taken place without resistance or criticism. Members of Congress themselves are often the most vocal opponents of the way things are done now, though only when those members are locked out of the process, except as party-line voters at the very end. Our next segment comes from National Public Radio's Ron Elving, with a report he filed in August 2017 about such calls for a return to a different way of doing things. Hi. 
I'm Ron Elving, and welcome to my office hours. Today I'd like to start off with just a quick video. Why don't we try the old way of legislating in the Senate? The way our rules and customs encourage us to act. If this process ends in failure, which seems likely, then let's return to regular order. In his emotional return to the Senate floor after his diagnosis of brain cancer, Arizona's Senator John McCain admonished the leaders of his own party for their mishandling of the health care bill, which he would vote against later on, and rhapsodizing about the virtues of something he called regular order. That rather vague-sounding phrase, regular order, actually refers to something with a much more concrete meaning, something based in the rules and precedents of the Senate's past. So it means doing things the old-fashioned way, the way you learned about Congress working when you were in school. Remember this from Schoolhouse Rock? I'm just a bill, yes, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Regular order just means walking through all those steps, touching all the bases. You really do assign the bill to a committee. You really do have hearings, public hearings. You really do have a session of the committee to debate and amend that bill. And all the members of the committee in both parties can debate and amend the bill and then you finally have a vote in committee, and if it's approved, it goes to the Senate floor for more amendments and more debate by all the members of the Senate in both parties. And then finally, you have a vote. Then if the House has its own version of the bill and that passes the House, then they have what they call a conference between the two chambers so that they make sure the two bills match because the Constitution requires the two bills be in identical form. Twins, if you will. At that point, both the House and the Senate must approve that final version one last time before it goes to the President to be signed into law. But regular order is more than just a process. It's also a approach to governing. It's a state of mind, if you will. It presumes at least a little bit of bipartisanship, representation for everyone, no matter what their party. That's regular order. Sounds a bit antique, like the Senate itself, but as John McCain has said, it's better than legislating behind closed doors and then twisting a lot of arms at the end. And I'm Ron Elving at NPR. Thank you for coming to my office hours. Americans frequently express dissatisfaction with the polarization and divisiveness of American politics with many saying they wish Congress could do things on a bipartisan basis. President Joe Biden campaigned in 2020 on a message of returning to bipartisanship, and Americans want this so badly. But is bipartisanship something we should pine for so much? Our very own Bob Sharp takes a look at this question by going back to a couple of examples of bipartisan legislation from a bygone era of party cooperation. Bipartisanship sounds good in theory. Cooperation, compromise, common ground, all good things, are they not? But does bipartisan legislation actually work better than legislation passed along purely partisan lines? Yes, partisan bills represent the values and priorities of only one of our two major parties, but is that automatically a bad thing? And is a bill that mixes those values or finds consensus on something necessarily good policy? We do have to go back a couple of decades to find examples of major legislation that passed with bipartisan majorities, but it's worth examining two of these cases to answer this question. In 1999, 
several years after President Clinton and congressional Republicans learned to stop fighting over everything and get along. The president signed into law the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, also known as the Financial Services Modernization Act, also known as the Repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. This law passed on an overwhelmingly bipartisan line, 90 to 8 in the Senate. It passed the House 362 to 57, with 75% of House Democrats and 98% of House Republicans voting yay. That's about as bipartisan as anything could possibly get in Congress now or ever. Here's what President Clinton had to say after signing this bill into law. I thank you all for coming to the formal ratification of a truly historic event. Senator Graham and Senator Sarbanes have actually agreed on an important issue. (laughs) This legislation is truly historic. And it indicates what can happen when Republicans and Democrats work together in a spirit of genuine cooperation. When we understand we may not be able to agree on everything, but we can reconcile our differences once we know what the larger issue is. Bipartisanship at its finest. Yet calling the repeal of Glass-Steagall disastrous might actually be an understatement, as demonstrated within a decade of this so-called historic act of Congress, a historically bipartisan act. What the so-called Financial Services Modernization Act actually did was repeal consumer protections and banking stability regulations, enabling commercial banks to engage in much riskier investment practices, some of which were responsible for the financial crisis of 2007 and the resulting Great Recession. Many legislators who voted for this act, particularly Democrats, now regret their vote. This includes President Biden. My biggest regret are a couple of votes I cast. I wish I had never voted to repeal um, the legislation limiting banks what they could do, Glass-Steagall. After the onset of the Great Recession and the Democratic takeover of Congress in the White House in 2008, Congress passed a decidedly partisan set of acts to correct for the late 90s deregulation push, including the Dodd-Frank Act, which Republicans have been attempting to repeal ever since. You know, Dodd-Frank is a disaster. We're going to be doing a big number of Dodd-Frank. So that's one big reason why I'm taking this action, and I'll be taking an action later this morning to begin our effort to dramatically reduce federal regulations, and we'll be reducing them bigly. Another overwhelmingly bipartisan act was passed during the Bush administration only three years later, the No Child Left Behind Act, only three years after the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. The No Child Left Behind Act was a major piece of education reform legislation with a sweeping effect on state education systems and significant funding commitments. The act passed 87 to 10 in the Senate, and 381 to 41 in the House. Again, very bipartisan. Again, not necessarily great policy. Not long after passage, criticism of the act's impact began to mount, and within a few years, it was widely recognized the act represented a major failure of education policy. After over a decade of dissatisfaction with the continuing failures of American public schools, the No Child Left Behind Act was replaced by the Every Student Success Act of 2015, which was also passed on a bipartisan basis, one of the few bipartisan bills passed during the Obama administration. This new Education Reform Act is far from perfect, but is generally recognized to do a much better job than the No Child Left Behind Act. So perhaps the ESSA shows that bipartisanship can produce good policy, but it certainly doesn't do so most of the time, and maybe only when correcting a widely recognized bipartisan failure. I'm Bob Sharp, reporting for Two Ring Circus. Thank you, Bob. Well, that's it for this episode of Two Ring Circus. Next time we turn directly to an issue that's been woven throughout the first eight, partisanship. We'll be looking at the origin and evolution of parties in America and their impact on the operation of Congress today. Until then, thanks for listening.